And we sang some incredibly uh, appropriate songs today because we're going to be looking at um, the instance of Jesus in Luke's gospel who goes up on the mountain to pray and is transfigured before his disciples. It is truly a mountaintop experience with Jesus that the disciples get to have. They get to see just a little bit of his glory. And so without any further ado, let's go ahead and dig right into it. Luke chapter 9, I'll be starting in verse 28 and reading through verse 36. This part's familiar because you guys just read it not that long ago. So this is just review. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, It is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So at the very beginning of this passage, we see that Jesus chooses three disciples to accompany him up onto the mountain. Peter, John, and James. Three out of the twelve. And at this point, you may be asking yourself a serious question. Is Jesus playing favorites. Now, some of you may not be familiar with the concept of playing favorites. I'm sure this didn't happen to any of you, but you may know some people who did. If you grew up with brothers or sisters, you may know that there was a favorite among you and your siblings, right? And from the looks I'm getting, some of you are like, yeah, and it wasn't me. That's for sure. So the, the, the favorite among the siblings, or another way to think of it, Um, I have one of my young nieces who sometimes, when she greets me, she just immediately starts punching me as if to uh, invite me into some sort of wrestling match. And I say to her, how dare you strike your favorite uncle like that? Without missing a beat, she says, you're not my favorite uncle. (laughs) Is Jesus playing favorites? Out of 12 followers who have been with him for quite some time now, he invites only three. Only Peter, John, and James get to go up the mountain to have this incredible mountaintop experience. Now, I don't think Jesus is playing favorites. So what is happening here? I mean, it's entirely possible that Jesus just knows all the hearts of these men following him, and he just knows these three are ready for this experience. The others aren't quite ready for it yet. Or what we might see playing out is just the fact that you, you can only have a truly deep connection with a very small group of people 
You can have other connections with larger groups. You see this happen in the Gospels. Jesus speaks to the crowds. Eventually, he has a group of about 70 that he sends out. He has another group of 12 that are like his core. But then, like, you have these three people, the ones that Jesus is most deeply pouring into. And they get to go up on the mountain to see this incredible sight. What they really see is a peek behind the curtain at the glory of Jesus. And it's a rare occurrence. In the Gospels, it seems that Jesus pretty rarely displays directly his glorious nature, that part of his identity that is glory-filled. A lot of the times, Jesus chooses, for whatever reason, to keep it mostly concealed. Now, obviously, when he performs a miracle, you see a little bit of his glory. Not directly, but you see the effects of his glory in the miracle. There are times we read in Scripture where it says, and he knew their hearts. Or you know, there are times when it's sort of revealed to us his, his glorious nature. But this experience on the mountain, this is like a whole nother level as far as peeking behind the corner. And in fact, the language here, especially the original language, it looks like the words are just trying to keep up with what's happening. You guys have probably had experiences like that where it's just like, I don't have words to talk about how incredible this is. The other accounts of the transfiguration, the gospels are similar. If you read in Matthew's account, they say his face was like The sun, I think, if you read in Mark's account, uh, his clothes were like whiter than the whitest bleach could ever get them. Like they're just trying to keep up. The original language is even more clear because the Greek here, when it gets to, it says that his face changed. It actually, the, the word for change is just other. So if you just read it right out, it might say something like his outward appearance of his face was other. That's really awkward. Uh, the, the word that we see used for the, the, the clothing, his clothing was like lightning. In the Greek, it's excess trapto. It's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. It's like, oh, this is the only word. Like, this is it. His clothing was like lightning. And you can imagine Peter and James and John trying to describe this later to the other disciples. What was it like up there? Well, like, Jesus' face was... It was other. He has a second face. No, 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 I don't mean that. Like, it was just, it was so different. And his, his clothes were just sort of glowing, shimmering. No, it was like lightning. Lightning was flashing through his clothes at the time. You just had to be there. Like, the words can't keep up with the kind of experience that they have on this mountain. And it's because the disciples got to see Jesus in his glory. We've been singing about that today. The glory of Jesus. A lot of biblical scholars connect this moment with what we read about last time where Jesus says some of you will not taste death before you see the glory, you know, the kingdom of God and then three of them get to immediately go up on the mountain and have this incredible glorious experience. For whatever reason though, Jesus for the most part chooses to keep this glorious part of his identity pretty well concealed. And these three on the mountain, Peter, James and John, they are only able to see The glory of Jesus, when we read, they become fully awake. Only when they become fully awake do they see the glory of Jesus. I was recently tagged on social media by someone who knows me very well, and it was a video about what we're doing to ourselves when we use the snooze button. Do you guys know what you're doing to yourselves? I didn't didn't know the extent of it. That snooze button, it is such a tempting modern device that we are all prone to use. 
reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from the comedian Jim Gaffigan. He says, oh, the snooze button. Nothing like starting the day off with a little procrastination. <laughs> right out of the gate. But this video that I was directed to taught me about using the snooze. And what happens when we do so, we're creating something that neuroscientists call sleep inertia. Sleep inertia. When you hit snooze, you are completely awake. It doesn't feel like it, but you are completely awake. You are, you are mentally awake enough to know there's an alarm going off. I need to make it stop. If I hit this button, it will stop. You are awake. But what happens when you hit snooze and go back to sleep You are starting the beginning of another sleep cycle because you've already woken up. And that sleep cycle needs between 75 and 90 minutes to complete itself. And how many minutes do you give it with the snooze button? Nine. You give your body like 10% of the time it needs to actually complete the thing that it's already started. And studies show that it can sometimes take hours For your body to fully recover from the grogginess that happens when you choose to snooze. I don't think the disciples had snooze buttons. But something about their experience, they are not fully awake when it gets started. They are somehow groggy. Are they exhausted from the ministry Jesus had been directing them to? Maybe. I don't know. Are they exhausted from the journey up the mountain itself? Maybe. We don't really know. But we do know that it wasn't until they were fully awake that they saw the glory of Jesus. And I really got stuck in this phrase this week. Almost I decided I couldn't stop because I needed a whole sermon. But like the idea, am I fully awake to where God wants to reveal his glory in the world around me? Am I like spiritually so sleepy-eyed or distracted or, or whatever it might be? Am I fully awake So that when the glory of God in Christ is apparent around me, I can actually experience it. Because I think that I want that for my life. And it's not just Jesus that's in glory in this passage. We see two other people show up and they are glorious as well. Those two people are Moses and Elijah. For the disciples, for people like Peter and John and James, this is a really, really exciting moment. These are their heroes. These are people they've heard stories about since they were teeny tiny little Jewish boys. Like these are, they are meeting their heroes. They did not have, like, there were no professional athletes. There were no, like, professional football, basketball, baseball players. Like, oh, my hero. These were it. Guys like this, Moses and Elijah, the heroes of the faith. And now they're, like, right here. They're, like, right here in front of us. How incredible that must have been for those disciples. And on top of that, seeing them alongside of Jesus, the one just a few short verses ago that they properly declared as what? The Messiah, the Christ, the long-promised anointed one is here. And and now Moses is here and Elijah is here. I think that they maybe were thinking, this is it. This is the end. Like, like it's, it's happening right now. Jesus is like, his clothes are like lightning. Moses and Elijah are joining him. Here we go. This, it's happening now. These two men are appearing in glory alongside the one that they confess to be the long-awaited Messiah. And what are the three talking about? Jesus, along with Elijah and Moses, Jesus' departure is what they're discussing. Now, metaphorically, this just means Jesus' death, his departure. 
his exit. And this shouldn't surprise us. Just a few verses earlier in Luke, in Luke's gospel, Jesus was talking about his death. I will be rejected. I will be, you know, I will be killed. So that doesn't surprise us. What's really interesting, though, is just under the surface in the original language is something uh, really, really fun because the word for departure, and if you have a Bible, there might be a little note next to it. It's actually the word exodus. They're talking about Jesus' upcoming exodus. So then you take a step back and you go, okay, hang on. How much exodus is there in this story? I mean, here's a short list, right? Um, They go up on a mountain to meet with God. That sounds like the exodus. They experience the glory of God, exodus. There's a thick cloud, exodus. There's a heavenly voice, exodus. There are directives to God's people, exodus. So what does that all mean for us? Jesus is leading a new exodus, not out of the physical slavery of Egypt, but out of the spiritual slavery to sin. Jesus, in his exodus, is leading his people to freedom, to provide for them, to walk as new people. And then you think about Elijah. I think Jesus' death, his departure, his exit, Similarly to Elijah, will be kind of weird. His death will be, because you know Elijah's story, like he didn't just like, you know, get weaker and weaker and he died and he was buried. There's this chariot from heaven and like, and Jesus' death will also be unique in the fact that it only lasts three days and then it's going to be over. So they're talking about Jesus' exit, his exodus, his departure. And in verse 33 I love it. I think it's such a great example of a genuine but misguided and not fully understood response to this kind of incredible experience. Peter seeing Jesus glowing, his face becoming other, Moses and Elijah. And he's just, he's just how, how do you respond and react to that? There are only two instances of speaking in this entire story. Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah. We don't, there's nothing recorded about what they actually said, word for word, but there's Two voices. One of them is Peter trying to react to everything he sees happening in front of him. And what is his first thing he says? Lord, it is good for us to be here. This is great. This is, this is, this is the best. And listen, you've, you've been in these situations. You've been in particular places at particular times with particular people. And you've thought to yourself, this is so good. I don't want this to end. I want to to just drag this out as long as I can and enjoy every drop of it because it's so good. And I was thinking of that this week, and I wonder if that's a little bit of what's happening at Asbury and the awakening and the revival that's happening down there. It's going on, I don't know, 10 plus days now, just 24 hours. I have friends, uh, Bruce and Judy Bell, who have been here on Sunday morning and talked to our congregation um, they they decided we're going, and so they did, and they talked about on social media their experience, and it's just incredible. They said they had to wait between two and three hours in line to get into the room where it's happening, and then they're told on the way in, please only stay for like a half hour or so because there are so many people that want to be here. We want to respect that, and they said it's just it's incredible. It's incredible what's happening. They just don't want it to end. It's so good. And that part of it makes sense to me. Peter's saying, Lord, it is good for us to be here. So what is Peter's solution? It's so good. 
I don't want it to end. He says, here's what we should do. Let's put up three shelters. So Peter's solution, let's have a construction project. That's what we should do. Let's build stuff. That'll help, right? That'll extend this out. And listen, you know, if you've ever done home remodeling and you start a project you think will take a week, how often does it take a week? Never. Two, three, six, eight. So Peter may, have, he may be onto something here. But that's his solution. Lord, this is, this is so good. Let's put up three shelters. Let's build something. And if we build shelters, then guess what? There's no reason for anyone to leave. Moses, your shelter's here. Elijah, let me show you to your room. Jesus, right here. Nobody needs to go anywhere. We built shelters for everyone. Let's just keep this going. Let's leave it just as it is. And probably my favorite part of this entire thing is what comes after Peter speaks. And it's just this parenthetical statement. He did not know what he was saying. I love that so much. Like, he, this experience has him so overwhelmed, he, he doesn't know what, he needs to say something, and if you know Peter, this is him. He blurts stuff out all the time, he acts impulsively, and he doesn't know what to say, so he's just like, this is great, let's build stuff together, right? I, I, and I love that we're told he has no idea. He's just overwhelmed by an incredible experience, he has no idea what he's saying. But I also wonder this, deep down, Did Peter overhear enough of the conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah about this departure, this exodus? And maybe he thinks, if I build some shelters, my friend doesn't have to die. If we just stay here, then my friend, this Messiah, doesn't have to go to Jerusalem and end up being killed. Let's just keep things right here, right as they are. And something about what Peter says triggers the appearance of a cloud. Because we read, like, while he was still speaking, a cloud, a thick cloud, appears and settles among them. The language that's used here is very, very similar to what we read in Exodus chapter 40, when a cloud settles on the tent of meeting in the tabernacle. And we read there that God's glory is so thick that Moses can't even enter into the tabernacle. No wonder, it says in Luke, they were afraid to go into the cloud. Yeah, I bet. Moses couldn't even get through the thickness of God's glory being revealed. And among the cloud, it's not just seeing cloud, it's hearing a voice. And it's not the voice of Jesus. That's a voice that Peter, James, and John, they would have recognized. It's not the voice of Abraham or Moses or Elijah. It's the voice of God himself. Only two instances of speaking. Peter says something, and immediately after, God says something in return. God is responding to what Peter has to say. It's a response to help Peter understand what's going on and what it all means. And so God speaks, unlike when God spoke at Sinai, when he did, he gave boatloads of laws and rules and regulations. This time, it's much more simple. What does God say? This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Consider this. In just the past 15 or so verses of Luke's gospel, Jesus has been identified as God's Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of Man, and now the Son of God. 
And it makes sense. Leading up to this, you had so many questions about who is this Jesus. He calms the storm and his disciples go, who is this? Herod in his palace hears about all that's happening. And what does he say? Who is this? And now we get three answers. Boom, boom, boom. First, it's Peter and the disciples saying, well, you're the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one. Then it's Jesus himself saying, I am the son of man. And now the voice of the father says, this is my son. I've chosen him. Listen to him. And immediately after that, in the aftermath of this divine proclamation, we simply read that Jesus was alone. And I don't want us to miss the significance of that. Because if Jesus is alone, then what two people have exited the scene? Moses and Elijah have sort of receded back into the background. There'll be no delay. Jesus will begin his exodus, his departure to Jerusalem. But it's not just the two men who sort of recede into the background. I want you to consider for a moment, what do those two men represent within Judaism? Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. So critical what they represent for God's people for so long. But now Jesus stands alone. Over their long history, They had laws and sacrifices, prophetic declarations, and now Jesus, it appears, is drawing all of that to one culmination in his own life. Everything in the law and the prophet, what? Leads us to Jesus. Jesus stands alone, and the Father says, listen to him. This is significant because when Peter suggests earlier Hey, let's build three shelters, one for Moses, one for Elijah, Jesus, one for you. It's as if he's considering Jesus to be someone who belongs among the great leaders of God's people, as if he's going to join this wonderful council of guidance for the people of God. And God immediately responds to have Jesus stand alone. Moses and Elijah are now gone. The only one left For guidance and authority for God's people is Jesus. And as a side note, I think Moses and Elijah, after discussing what's about to happen, they're happy to recede into the background because everything they carried along was leading to this point. Moses faithfully guided the people out of slavery through the challenges of the wilderness into freedom and blessing. It was beautiful and it was fruitful in its time. That system of laws and sacrifice, they were given as gifts that held the people together and close to the Lord for generations. Elijah, he bravely spoke the truth that needed to be heard when the people of God had either turned their hearts or hardened their hearts to him. It was beautiful and fruitful in its time in those prophetic messages. They drew God's wayward people back to him to remind him of his purposes for them. But as beautiful and as fruitful as their ministries were, God has a new command from the cloud. Listen to my son. I really can't say it any better than one of my favorite authors and pastor, Brian Zahn. He says this, I love the Old Testament. I read it every day. It is sacred scripture. 
but I never read it without Jesus. Jesus is my sponsor for admission to the Old Testament. I don't read the law and the prophets by the light of Moses and Elijah. I read the law and the prophets in the light of Christ. I love that middle phrase. Jesus is my sponsor for admission to the Old Testament. Because the command from the cloud is what? Listen to my son. And you have to believe that in the ministry of Jesus, there were so many people saying, but Moses this, but Elijah that. And Jesus sometimes has to say, you have heard it said, but now I say unto you. Jesus stands alone. So a few things to think and pray through as we finish looking at Scripture together today. Here's the first one. In this moment of silence and reflection, ask God to help you become fully awake to whatever He wants to reveal to His glory among us. Secondly, just take some time to give thanks for the exodus, the departure of Jesus, the hope that it provides, the freedom, the guidance, the provision, just like that initial exodus did for those people enslaved in Egypt, Jesus does for us today. And then lastly, are you allowing Jesus to stand alone? When you seek wisdom from any source, are you doing so in the light of Christ? The one the Father says, listen to him. So I'm going to flip through those reflections one more time. I'm going to stop talking so that the Holy Spirit can speak ever so more clearly to each one of us. Um, And during this time, I just hope that one of these things or maybe something entirely different grabs your heart Um, as we just allow for a rest to the noise and for the Spirit to speak. And I will close that time in a word of prayer in just a moment. Father, today we're thankful that Jesus stands alone. That in him we have everything we need. And that all of your fullness dwelled in him. Which is why today, Jesus, we lift you up above and beyond anything else because you are worthy and deserving. God, we want to see, hear, and experience your glory. Help us to become fully awake. And we know you're not going to show your glory every day, every moment, 
Probably not in ways we even expect most of the time. But God, if we are weary-eyed or spiritually sleepy, help us to become fully awake, to see and hear and experience the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray all this. Amen.